0: Welcome to Outer Insights, where we shine a light on corruption and maladministration in South Africa. We delve into the stories and issues that affect the lives of ordinary South Africans and explore the impact that corruption has on our society. Through in-depth discussions and expert analysis, we aim to raise awareness, foster dialogue and hold those in power to account. Join us on this journey as we seek to uncover the truth and advocate for a better, more transparent South Africa. I'm Ilse Soltzverl for Auta and today's topic is energy, load-shedding the proposed state of disaster, the proposed Minister of Electricity, the state of ESCOM and AUTA's court actions to stop this state of disaster as well as the car-power-ship deal from going through. I will be discussing all of these issues with Advocate Stefani Fick and Brendan Slade, well known to outer audiences. I hope you find this informative. Eskom started doing business on the 1st of March 1923, but sadly, a hundred years later, there seems to be very little left of this once internationally renowned power utility. Load shedding is not only a daily occurrence, but the severity of load shedding has increased with ESCOM admitting to briefly having reached stage 7 last week. Ironically, within 24 hours after it was announced that the ESCOM board booted André de Reiter, the CEO. And this, of course, happened after his bombshell interview on the true state of ESCOM corruption. And that was aired the previous evening. The last few days I've seen more action on the energy front with the long-awaited state of disaster regulations that were gazetted on the 28th of February. For the last five years, AUTA has been deeply involved in exposing corruption at ESCOM and the fight in this space is gaining new momentum. Today I'm joined by advocate Stefanie Fick, she's AUTA's Executive Director of Accountability and Brendan Slade, AUTA's Legal Project Manager for Energy. Good afternoon Stefanie and Brendan, thanks for joining me today.
1: Good afternoon Ilza and
0: Brendan, nice to be here, thank you.
2: (laughs) afternoon ladies thanks for having us
0: okay i want to know first things first what did you make of andre de Reiter's interview last week were you surprised about his revelations or not really i think that if you really put your mind to it is what he
1: has said is nothing new i think we all knew that there is some shenanigans going on at escom i just think that it's like a reality check that Year out of the horse's mouth, you hear what we might have speculated. And and, and if you look at the amount of cases that we made and what happened during the state capture period at ESCOM, we have to admit that we knew that there was something wrong there because there's so much money that um, is available there to steal. Um, But it is a reality check to hear to what extent the corruption you know, the tentacles of the corruption in ESCOM. And no wonder that this very important SOE is on its knees. And no wonder that civil society, normal citizens of South Africa, um, no wonder we struggle to have electricity. I think it was a very good thing because as South Africans, I think we needed the reality check. And we needed to know that the problem is not ESCOM. It is not ESCOM's fault that we have load shedding. It is, if I may be as blunt as to say, that it is, again, the political interference, the sheer magnitude of the corruption that is directly responsible for
2: load shedding.
0: Brendan, anything you want to add?
2: Yes, thank you, Ilze. Uh, to be quite frank, the writing has been on the wall on the corruption allegations for quite some time. As Stefani correctly stated, that it's, it's nothing new, but it is a reiteration, another reality check for South Africa to, to see it coming from the horse's mouth and to actually shine the light on what is going on behind the scenes. Uh, we obviously have been involved in, in laying criminal charges in relation to procurement irregularities and corruption at ESCOM, which do not necessarily relate to the um, allegations made by Andre de Reiter, but corruption and maladministration is nothing new. Uh, what stands out for for civil society in particular is, is the response by government. It's irrelevant, whether or not andre derraiter previously approached the hawks informed a certain minister of these allegations the fact remains that there are some truths to the allegations and because he had previously informed the the executive thereof that's just just red lights going off red flags popping up all over and the fact that it's now becoming a political football of questioning Andre de Ruyter's capability as the CEO of ESCOM is quite disheartening. We would have liked to have seen leadership from the ANC government in, first of all, acknowledging that, yes, there is, is a massive corruption and maladministration issue at ESCOM. And secondly, that they are serious about doing something about that and not just throwing mud in the public sphere. But to add to that, yes, addressing corruption and and maladministration and all of the above is one thing. But what we can take from this interview, which we may not necessarily realize, is that the media itself plays a gigantic role in exposing what is going on around us. Um, That applies even more pressure on government to do something than than we would.
0: Is it safe to say that we haven't seen the end of state capture? Oh yeah, I think it is a is a perfect example of not only that
1: state capture is continuing. If you break it down what was state capture? Was corruption. And I think what it tells me is that corruption is an illness and we can see the effects of corruption. But corruption has been there before, during and after state capture and maybe we should relook really look at the definition of state capture because previously it was the uh, guptas and how they influenced um you know how money was taken from from soes but here we have an soe and still it's a coordinated effort to steal the money Corruption is the name of the game. And that's why I'm saying that this interview by André Le was really a reality check, that after state capture, there was a state capture commission and there was findings made and recommendations made that in actual fact, the state capture commission did not bring an end to corruption and that we still have an ongoing battle to eradicate corruption and that we can never never sit on our laurels and say, we've done enough. It is a continuous fight. We need to be vigilant each and every day because um, whether it's up front, whether it's behind the scenes, but corruption is still continuing. I think we need all the help that we can get in order to keep the spotlight on the fact that corruption We haven't seen the loss of corruption yet.
0: Brendan, anything to add?
2: Yes, thank you. It was a spot on statement by Stefani. The thing with state capture is we, we need to be aware of the fact that there is a lot of PR going around, the whole notion of what state capture is. But unfortunately, this is a very systemic, institutionalized appearance in our country, unfortunately. State capture as we know it today, is much more like a cancer than a single occurrence in the history or the or the chronological timeline of the country. So, uh, unfortunately, we as South Africa, we as government, and to some extent we we as the South African public, are trying to treat the issues of state capture as as rather treating the symptoms and not specifically treating the cause what is state capture. So, of course, there needs to be commissions of inquiries, arrests need to be made, um, people need to be held accountable, the money needs to be recouped some way or or, or another. But that is not enough to stop state capture and the whole cabal around state capture from, from doing it again tomorrow. So, it's a massive task for South African going forward, we we should not only stop the bleed, we should treat the cause, which can be done. Unfortunately, it's just a matter of, of political will, and all hands need to come on deck in order to address this, so that it does not happen in the future for this country again.
0: One of the things that you said now is we need all hands on deck. And is uh, I think... It's safe to say that Alta has always been willing to put hands on deck. A year ago in March, you also announced that you are challenging the coal power ship deal. That is the deal that will bring 1,220 megawatts of power to South Africa for the next 20 years as part of an emergency, a so-called emergency agreement at massive cost. Um, the pre-Ukrainian war cost was um something like 220 billion rand am i correct That's yes correct, yeah so you decided last year march you're going to intervene on that you're going to try to stop the car power ship deal this year in march uh you are going to court again. In fact, you were in court this week to challenge the state of disaster and to try and interdict the regulations on the state of disaster from being gazetted. Unfortunately, that actually happened. Uh, on Tuesday, 28 February, we saw those gazettes seeing the light. Please just take us through this week's happening, Stefani. So we were looking forward to the
1: court appearance on the 28th of February because we believe that that was an important step in order to get our review application going. So what we've decided, so let's just step back a little bit, is when the president said that, okay, there is now going to be a state of disaster. I think all our heads stood up and we realized that why why do you need a state of disaster to solve the problem we are currently sitting with and i think it's a complex problem if you talk about electricity and escom and and and, and so forth but we need more electricity we need more capacity on the grid so why do you need a state of disaster and then in the same thought I think all of us realize but sure are we going to have a repeat of the ppe corruption because we all know what happened there the minute the state of disaster was declared people were really sick people lost their lives and guess what people still find it necessary to make themselves guilty of corruption that i think there are still masks lying somewhere in a in a storeroom that cost the taxpayer double triple whatever times more than it was supposed to cost. So people use these circumstances and something as actually as serious as a state of disaster to um, just enrich themselves. So what on earth is going to happen this time? Because although, you know, part of the state of disaster and part of the regulations that we saw is that, yes, the AG is going to do this live um, audit of all the expenses, but we've seen that that didn't help with PPE corruption and that once the money has left the government's purse, you will not get it back because there's no political will to hold people to account and to get the money back. So to come back then is we then decided we don't think that firstly the declaration of the electricity crisis is a disaster and then secondly that the Minister of Cooperative Governance shouldn't have declared a national state of disaster. So there's sort of two legs in our review application. And why review application? Because we do feel that when they made this decision, that they probably did not take all the relevant facts into consideration or just ignored it, that their decision, there's no rationality to this decision. Can I just interrupt myself by saying, we are not minimizing the fact that electricity is a problem. We realize as an organization, and I think just as people, that the electricity crisis in this country is killing our economy. It's killing small to medium and maybe the large um, companies as well. People are really suffering. But that being said, is that I think the message is that you will not believe it, but the government can actually do something about this disaster in, in inverted commerce without reverting to a state of disaster. So we, we decided that we're going to tackle um, this issue in order to review the decision and then hopefully a court will agree with us. We were scared that um, while tackling this review application and taking into account the history of government's actions when it comes to litigation, the Stalingrad tactic, the fact that they are um, litigating with taxpayers' money and any organization or person that takes them on obviously has to get the money from somewhere, is that this review will take too long. So maybe we should try this interdict, asking the court to order the, the government not to issue any regulations. But when the court proceedings started, it became apparent that they already they can file their, their papers, which we didn't have beforehand, and that the matter would have to be postponed in order for us to then answer to whatever they say. And we are wasting time and money in order to do that. Plus then afterwards we found out they already in any case published some regulations. So what became important is that the main issue is the state of disaster and that we need that off the table so instead of wasting more time on trying to 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 stop the regulations um is to put government under pressure and give them timelines to file their papers so now we sort of got a little bit of our power back they can't waste our time anymore and now our review application can be dealt with as soon as reasonably possible so now we have the hope that hopefully by the end of march we will have an answer. But I want to reiterate that people need to understand that a state of disaster was never meant for situations like this. A classic example of a state of, 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 of disaster is the floods in KwaZulu-Natal. Where people all of a sudden, you need resources and you need ways and means in order to make it possible for people to survive. Uh, because they don't have access to, to food, water, and, and, and all of that. Our electricity crisis is firstly made. I don't think anybody will fight with us on that ground. But current legislation makes it possible for government to have dealt with this situation years ago. This electricity problem is a problem in the making from 1998. Government knew that they needed more capacity. They needed more green energy on on the grid. And what happened? We built um, Kusile and Madupi, to enormous projects that was riddled with corruption. We have an energy minister that was more interested in getting nuclear than to get new power producers on the grid in order to alleviate the problem. So what he said of the state of disaster is that the same people that were unable to do it is now under a state of disaster all of a sudden and miraculously will be able to deal with this situation no i think this is just another opportunity to take the available funds and divert it to you know just a few people's pockets so it became very important for us to get rid of um the state of disaster and then to concentrate on getting um, ESCOM on the right path. And guess what? There is a plan. ESCOM is not going to be saved tomorrow or the day after. Load shedding is not going to stop today or tomorrow. But there is a short, medium, long-term plan. And um, before I bore everybody to death, so this is just the last point I want to, to, to make and give Brendan a chance to maybe also share his thoughts. Is that, for example, one of the easiest solutions is just give ESCOM the ability to procure their own diesel so that they can put gas turbines, I think that works on diesel, on the grid. And immediately we can alleviate the problem of load shedding. But no, you know, government are thinking about a 2 billion, which is probably 200 billion, which is probably going to end up being a 400 billion rand contract mm. with an entity like Car Power that will maybe save you one stage of load shedding.
0: Brendan, I want you to basically take us through some of the alternatives that there are instead of opting for a state of disaster. And I also want you to just give us an idea of what can be done when that will bring relief because we are all very, very despondent about the load shedding. We are all very pessimistic that there will be any good coming out of the state of disaster, but we are not clear on what can be done and how soon can it be done.
2: Thank you, Ilze. Just before I answer that question, to go back to to what Stefani stated, uh, when Sona took place uh, a couple of weeks or so ago, We were also shocked, so mind my pun in that regard. We do believe that the declaration of a national state of disaster is in fact a knee-jerk reaction by the ANC government, which reflects its inadequacies for everybody to see. We really hope that this is an eye-opener for all the voters out there and that change will come in that respect sooner rather than later. Speaking of change... The national state of disaster will not change our energy crisis at the moment. Yes, the regulations published do provide additional powers, which are to some extent very authoritarian by nature, but it does still not address or provide answers on how exactly this will be solved. So first off, we need to understand that we are in the current crisis because government neglected to get new generation capacity online. As Stefani pointed out, the warning lights went off as early as nineteen ninety eight in the white paper of energy. Following that, we all know what happened with Madupi and Kosile, which is a disaster in itself. It cost the taxpayer millions, if not billions, up to date. Go back to generation capacity, that is where our problem lies. So for every state of load shedding which we experience on a daily basis, that means that the country is at that point in time at a deficit of one gigawatt of power or 1,000 megawatts. So we get generation capacity, you know, obviously by, by building and establishing new power plants, sourcing it, from IPPs. So we are currently in a complete deficit. The current generation fleet is not running optimally. Uh, the energy availability factor is not where it should be. So that means that the years of neglect re- in in these power stations resulted in what we see today. Those power stations cannot run at their maximum capacity. So this can be attributed to what happened during the state capture era. You know, checks and balances weren't in place. It was a matter of keeping the lights on for the sake of keeping the lights on and neglecting the state asset, which is the generation fleet. So in order to supplement the generation fleet, we started looking at uh, procurement with independent power producers, through the IPP office. Unfortunately, that process is is entangled in a lot of red tape. There's a lot of policy issues behind streamlining processes, which is why we now see that new generation capacity is not coming online as it should in terms of plans rolled out in the past. So if we had installed new generation capacity in the form of renewable energy, say, Five years ago, which, by the way, was possible, we would not have sat with, with the current energy crisis we have currently. It is a big political block on getting renewables connected as fast as possible. We obviously know what government's take is on the whole coal situation. Just a disclaimer, there is space for coal in our current generation fleet, in our energy mix so to speak. But because a lot of these coal generating plants are now nearing the end of their lifespan, we desperately need to get new generation capacity in the form of cheaper technology which is in this instance renewable energy. So yes, to some extent, we still need to rely on on the coal fleet because it does produce the majority of, of our power currently, but we need to look forward. We do not need to stand in one space and hold on to a coal fleet while the rest of the world is moving forward. If we go to renewable energy, we will cut emissions costs and that will also open the door for a lot of additional investment. We are also now transitioning to what they call the Just Energy Transition. And some Western countries have pledged some funds for for this particular purpose. So looking forward, we need to reskill the workers in the coal industry. First of all, we, we need to make sure that that process is completely transparent. We need to know where exactly the Just Energy Transition funding is going and whether or not it is fit for purpose. So that money can certainly be utilized and injected into the industry for the coming online of additional generation capacity, whether or not that is from the private sector. It's quite a catch-22, the issue of the state of disaster itself. We, we like to see the declaration of the state of disaster as, as Medusa's head, if I may. If you cut Medusa's head, any regulations that had been published after that point in time would then automatically also be rendered as invalid and not not enforceable because then the head that is the declaration of the state of disaster, you know, it's not there anymore. So any regulations would not have any justification on that. Just to sum up, unfortunately, we are also seeing a lot of Stalingrad tactics in removing the red tape in getting the executives to make the correct decision, you know, in streamlining the process. On the other hand, we also need to acknowledge the fact that ESCOM will not be the same ESCOM that it was in its heyday. The way forward is for ESCOM to be unbundled as quickly as possible, which will entail a transmission distribution and its remaining generation capacity aspect into separate entities. And that can be achieved through legislation. That is currently in the works in the Electricity Regulation Amendment Bill, which needs to make its way through the parliamentary processes as soon as possible. Again, the unbundling issue of ESCOM does not need a state of disaster. This could have happened quite some time ago, and we would have been in a much different situation had that actually been the case.
0: Yes, and just for the listener's sake, Auto was involved in an application to the Competition Commission. I think it was at the end of 2017, and in that it was suggested that the Competition Commission looks into the unbundling of ESCOM to stop exactly what we are seeing now, and that is an absolute reliance on one generator of electricity. But sadly, the Competition Commission felt that was out of their scope. I've got another question for you, Stefani and Brendan. I'm a layperson, but the one thing that I saw in the state of disaster regulations is that there is no time frame. We don't see that it will be implemented from this date ending on that date. And am I just being paranoid? But can some of these regulations be extended long after it's needed?
1: So a state of disaster, it can only last so long. So if we take ourselves back to COVID regulations, it can be extended from time to time. What the regulations, interestingly enough, made reference to is that any action that was taken under the state of disaster will continue even when the the state of disaster comes to an end. So if government signed a contract, let's use that example. So if government signs a contract because of the state of disaster for services to be rendered and then this uh, state of disaster are terminated, That contract will keep on going. The contract is not directly linked to the state of disaster. I cannot imagine exactly what they had in mind because you can't make lawful and and unlawful action by making a regulation. And everybody must just remember that doesn't matter how many laws you have, doesn't matter how many regulations you have, doesn't matter how many exemptions you have, all of that is subservient to our constitution.
0: I've got a question on coal power ships. Don't you think that they might want to sneak coal power ships into this mix under the guise of the state of disaster? And like you say now, then that contract remains effective for the next 20 years. Exactly. Yeah, you are quite correct. And that is one of our biggest fears is that
1: this ag- open up the gates for car powership to come with this ridiculous contract. And the minister is on record saying that, you know, maybe the 20 years will not work, maybe we need to make it shorter. So you really get the impression that they want to push through car powership no matter what. Let me just put um, this in perspective. The regulations that was published, very much a copy and paste out of what the Disaster Act said. The, the legislation, you know, the, a national state of disaster can mean certain things. There's certain sections in the legislation which make certain things possible. Um, so let me give you an example. It's all about this national, local, and provincial government working together. There is a relaxation of, of, of certain rules and regulations, and that's all possible because you've declared the state of disaster. The regulations of the, the 28th of February is not very clear. It is very wide, um, but it does give you an indication what can go wrong. Um, some of it is probably good because what we have seen is, is a struggle to get a you know, new generation of in- electricity on the grid. The only question remains is you can do that without a state of disaster. You don't need this, and if I may, this cloak-and-dagger style of getting things done. What is very worrying and what we've seen with PPE corruption is this, um, you know, doing stuff under the table and trying to circumvent as much um, rules and regulations as you can in order to give contracts to people who, under normal circumstances, would not have gotten the contract. That's not what a state of disaster is for. It's to make it easier to give contracts to the right people in order to solve your problem, not to put money in just certain individuals and certain companies' pocket. Car powership, unfortunately, started way back when under a state of disaster saying, you know what, we need exemption because we need to provide electricity so that, yes, a very emotional point, so that children and patients in hospitals can get their oxygen. Now, under normal circumstances, that sounds, but yo, maybe we need some help, but your help needs to be directly related to the help that is given. Now, to sign a 200 billion rand contract over the next 20 years that is not cost effective, will not assist the whole country to, to reduce load shedding, is really just ridiculous. But then you use something like a state of disaster to, I want to say, you know have dealings in the dark and, and, and not, be, not be transparent. There's so many other ways that you can alleviate the electricity problem. And and, and and Brendan has highlighted those. Um, Car power ship, and, and here I'm referring to what Andrea writer who was inside the belly of the beast, is saying, why get ships? Why not build the infrastructure in your country so that at least you have assets? But no, we think it's better to get ships from from international companies to come and park in our harbours that's not good for our environment. We'll not solve the um, electricity problem. And we're going to buy the gas at uh, the Rand dollar exchange rate. So you can just imagine. Now with the war in Ukraine, gas being a problem, South Africa's Rand is not doing great. How much this is now going to cost us? And we're probably looking at a at, at double the 200 billion. Then the question remains, yes, it might be under other circumstances a good idea. But taking into consideration where South Africa is and our specific problem. Sure, guys, can't you think of a more economical way of trying to solve um, load shedding? Buy! Opening up the grid for people with solar to provide more electricity, for businesses that you know already have solar to provide some electricity to the grid, and then start building alternative energies, energy sources in order to provide us with more electricity, and then eradicate the corruption that is still going on with Kasuli and Madupi for years, and this is also what Andrei DeReta pointed out for years. were no maintenance so we are dealing with a very old coal fleet the new fleet is limping along because you know people were just stealing and you know trying to solve the problem realistically and i do think and i want to i want to repeat that it's because of this political interference and an alternative motive and instead of just looking at but what is in the best interest of south africa and its people and that we can really solve that quite quickly by just um, getting the experts um, on board leave the politicians out of it um, and let's fix the problem so that people can have electricity
0: Brendan the appointment of a third minister to solve the electricity crisis this time a minister of electricity was also announced by the president. We've got Gwede Mantar, she's the minister in charge of the Department of Mineral Resources and Energy, and we've got Pravin Gordhan, who is the minister in charge of public enterprises. And now we are going to pay a third minister for the solving of a crisis that was, like Stefani pointed out, self-made. Any thoughts on that and any thoughts on the way forward? I'll do out our See this court case panning out.
2: Thanks, The First off, hypothetically, let's say an electricity minister was necessary. A state of disaster is not necessary in order for, for the president to make such an appointment. Just going back in time, we've had Sona. This big announcement on an electricity minister was made. And it is today, as we are speaking here, it is the 1st of March we have not seen the face of an electricity minister of a day old. So why it was such a a statement made in haste, we do not know. If if the disaster was to such an extent that that action, according to the presidency, ought to have been taken there and then, we would have had the electricity minister being sworn in yesterday.
0: Well, Um, the day after Sonar, more than likely.
2: Yes, yes. But we've hardly seen our
0: president, to be quite honest.
2: Yes, yes. That's very disheartening. The president is obviously the head of the executive. And as the head of the executive, you know, you would expect that because the, the, the cabinet ministers currently in office are not doing their job correctly, you would expect the president to know what to take action, to reshuffle, to put the right executives in place. So it may seem for the average South African that there's a big power play currently underway within the ANC and that certain cabinet ministers want it their way and it's their way or the highway. So it would seem that in order to circumvent a static cabinet minister, you know what, why don't we just create a new executive member? And unfortunately, that is a very plausible reality that that is playing out before our eyes. It will obviously cost the the taxpayer additional tax monies to pay for this, you know, set up of additional resources, set up of additional task teams, additional commissions, and all of that jazz. And at the end of the day, nothing is happening as it should. So this is, again, a reflection of an inadequate cabinet. And the solution, as as it would seem from the presidency perspective, is to throw people at the problem and not necessarily address the resources and the institutions and the cabinet ministers we already have, but rather throw some more people in the fray and hopefully that solves the problem. With an additional executive in the mix, that will mean Additional consultations need to be taken. That will mean additional regulations need to be promulgated. Potentially additional legislation needs to be made. So it's actually adding a lot more red tape than necessary in order to solve this crisis.
0: I also want to know as a closing thought from both of you, do you feel that we are heading South in the country when it comes to the abuse of power specifically. Can the state of disaster regulations be seen? And the fact that the president is putting the minister of electricity, the expected minister of electricity, in the presidency, is that not centralizing power and pointing at the possibility of abusing power? Can they, for instance, not stop people from marching? Uh, for electricity under the state of disaster regulations?
1: Well, the, the state of disaster regulations is problematic in the sense that we saw with our previous state of disaster during COVID that there is a centralization of power. Um, tongue-in-cheek, I mean, to think that two ministers can't fix the problem, that you need a third one, and then in that mix, you now declare a state of disaster, so you add another minister, which is Lamini Zuma, because she is the, the minister that's overseeing a disaster, that what is the message that you send to me? It says we have an inability to solve the problem, but maybe declaring a state of disaster, then it will happen. And unfortunately, it will not what a declarations of state of disaster will mean if this has to stand is that because government is unable to govern properly, unable to, to solve their problems, all they need to do is to declare a state of disaster. Because I think you will agree with me. The disaster is not only electricity. There's a transport disaster if you look at Transnet, PRASA. Our water is in dire need of maintenance, clean water, etc. We sit with communities. They don't complain about load shedding because guess what? They don't have
0: electricity. They don't complain about dirty water because they don't have any. Sorry, what you're also saying is that this may set a dangerous precedent, that they will from now on decide, oops, this needs a state of disaster and call out yet another one on, for instance, water or transport, roads, whatever. Exactly. And and, and what is also worrying about the regulations,
1: and I think what is missing, is do we really think that politicians are the ones that have got enough experience in order to deal with very complex problems? No, it's the experts. It is the experts within ESCOM, although they lost a lot of expertise, that should be able to assist when um, solving the problems. Get business involved, get civil society involved getting former ministers around the table to try and solve our electricity crisis is not going to be it what was really worrying is when we found out that escom didn't even know about the state of disaster you want to declare a state of disaster to solve your electricity crisis and you do not even inform the soe that is in charge of the very problem so it just doesn't make sense in summary what i think this means for us as south africans is that we need to become involved we cannot sit anymore and just complain about a problem we need to become involved become involved in your local government yes they may not listen to you the first time you pick up a phone but at some point we are south africans everybody needs to become involved stop complaining and tackle the bull by its horns we have the power we need to realize that we have the power and one place we do have the power is in 2024 when we have to vote to hold politicians to account to tell them that we will not sit still for you to make a mess of what is a beautiful country we have diverse cultures in this country and we need to build a nation Our democracy is still actually very young but We should fight vigorously to keep a democracy where everybody receives the services that they deserve. And currently, you know, you can't complain about the services because there are none. So, guys, when we pick up our pens to vote next time, keep this in mind because I really think Parliament has failed us and it's time that we get a Parliament that will act in the best interest of me, you and
0: everyone else. Thank you very much, Advocate Stefani Fick. She's the Executive Director of Accountability at Alta. Brendan Slade, the last word belongs to you. Brendan is the Head of Legal uh, on the Energy Project at Alta.
2: Great, Ilza. Just some final thoughts. There is a massive difference of being concerned about government power as opposed to being paranoid about what government may do. So history is the best teacher for us. We all know what happened with the COVID-19 regulations. And as a matter of fact, we have not seen a lot of accountability coming from investigations that sprung from that time period. It's also quite disheartening to see at this stage that the public interest is only an issue after the fact, only after certain regulations are published, only after government has made a certain decision. We are hopeful that in the near future of South Africa, who knows, maybe after 2024, that the public's interest will become central, which by the way, it's supposed to be central in government decision making. But just just one final thought, as Stefani also mentioned, what can you do as the average South African citizen. Become part, mobilize, organize yourselves as communities. I know it's difficult, but do not just stand around the braai and complain about the issues that that we face every day. Become part of the solution. Make your voice heard. And most importantly, support organizations that are already on the front lines fighting government on various irrational aspects
0: if you enjoyed this podcast please remember to share it with your friends and if you like Auta's work please consider supporting them with a donation all donations are tax deductible until next time goodbye from me Ilse Salzvedel